The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, church. Here at Doxa, we study from the English Standard Version, and today we're reading, or I'm reading, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 10. You can follow along with me with the Bibles under your seats on page 246 or behind me on the screen. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your, seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we're in our series, In Spite of Us, the story of God and his people from our uh, in First Samuel, and we're back here after being a week off, and we're in chapter 24, and two weeks ago, we saw David in a cave in exile, right? We saw how David was unfairly pushed out of society, unfairly framed for doing all kinds of things that he didn't do, and now he's hiding for his life, and he's not just hiding in one cave, he's having to move from one hiding place to the next hiding place to the next hiding place, as Saul, who is his father-in-law, his best friend's dad, and was his own, like a, a guy that he, they fought together. They were actually some kind of, actually, you know, 
colleagues, at the very least, Saul is seeking him to kill him. He's seeking his life. He's spread across the whole country that David has been trying to usurp him or overcome him or kill him. And we saw the struggle that David went through in that cave as he was in exile. And sort of that struggle that he went through in order to try to find refuge, not in the cave that he's hiding in, but refuge in the Lord. Because what we saw last week, or two weeks ago, is that there is no lasting refuge other than the Lord. And, and what he does with his people faithfully time and time again is he puts us on the run. He puts us on the run and we try to find refuge in one place after another after another until finally we see that he alone is our refuge. And we can sing that song the way David sang it. And since then, we, Saul has continued to pursue David. Okay, so through chapter 23, which we kind of covered in uh, uh, David's relationship with Jonathan, through chapter 23, Saul is chasing after him, and, and Saul chases, there's a sort of like comical kind of episode at the end of chapter 23 where Saul is chasing David, and he's chasing him around the mountain, and it's sort of like, a, like Tom and Jerry or Coyote and Roadrunner, where like, they're like chasing each other, like he's chasing him around the mountain, and David just keeps going around the mountain, and they just keep chasing each other around and around, and, and as that's happening, Saul keeps catching up closer and closer to David, and then as an answer to prayer, right, like God answers prayer in little ways, like the key in Mr. Homer, and answers it in big ways like this. A messenger comes to Saul and says, hey, the Philistines are attacking Israel. You gotta come and help us. And Saul, right when he's getting ready to catch David, he gets this call and he has to leave. Isn't that amazing how God answers our prayers? Oftentimes, he puts the answer in motion even before we even know what to pray. Think of all that he had to do in order to orchestrate the Philistines and the call to come to Saul and David gets saved just in time. And now we're at the beginning of chapter 24 and, and Saul takes care of the Philistines and he says, all right, now back to David in the beginning of chapter 24 in verses one and two. If you have your Bible, you can open it there. Uh, if you, by the way, the, the black Bible is under the chairs. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Uh, a cool, you know, cool name of a place. Now Saul is bringing 3,000 men. Just let's get a picture of what's going on here. Saul is bringing 3,000 men to kill his son-in-law David, who is hiding somewhere with maybe around 400 men. Uh, Saul is bringing 3,000 well-equipped, well-trained men and David is hiding in the rocks trying to catch their food with about 400 untrained men. In fact, we saw two weeks ago the men who came to David, it says there were those who were distressed and those who were like outcasts of society. That's who were with David. So Saul is really bringing like a hammer to David. He's bringing a hammer to the fight. He is saying, we are, we are gonna settle this right now. I am, Saul is obsessed with David. There's a little insanity here. David with his 400 men, untrained, hiding in a cave. Saul with his 3,000 men now seeking him. But, but as insane as it may be, and as, there is insanity going on here, but isn't there always a little bit of insanity when we get obsessed about something? Like, haven't you ever been obsessed about something, even something small that you're, like your friends and people around you are finally like, hey, Randy, just, just give it up. 
You know, like, like Gamecock fans about, you know, the catch or the push off like years ago. Like just get over it, it was a catch. Or, 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 like, or maybe, like, maybe you just can't get over it. Like somebody said something to you. Somebody like, you guys ever see that episode of Seinfeld where, uh, where George gets a put down in the conference room and he spends like days obsessing about what he, his comeback should have been to that man and he finally gets back in the room and he try to set it elaborately up so the guy will say something and he thinks he's going to trump him and then like he gets trumped. Like we get obsessed about things and there's a little bit of insanity involved in it. But view it from, from Saul's standpoint, all right? Well, let's just, as insane as it might be, as obsessed as he might be, let, let's just view it a little bit from Saul's standpoint. He had been anointed king. He had had some good success. He had secured his throne and he had produced an heir. That's all the things that a king should do in order to have an an established kingdom that he can pass off to his children and their children. Then he messes up and God rejects him from being king. And then out of the blue, this shepherd kid, it's not even like another general. It's not even another lord. It's not somebody who's powerful and educated and rich, but this shepherd kid, David, all all of a sudden he can do no wrong and ever he rises in popularity and even Saul's family. His daughter wants to marry him and does and his son like gives him his possessions to show like, hey, you can be king and not me. And Saul's like, these people are going crazy because Saul knows something. Saul knows what happens to a king who is overthrown by another king. And here's what happens. At this time, when a king is overthrown by another king, that king is gonna die and all of that king's household are gonna die because the person who comes into power is going to clear away anybody else that may have any possible claim to the throne and is gonna say, they're all gone, so it's me and my family now. Saul knows. He's looking at his daughter and he's looking at his son saying, you are so obsessed with David, but don't you understand, he's going to turn around, he's going to kill me, and he's going to kill you and your children, and there's not going to be, in your dog, there's not going to be any of us left. Saul knows exactly what happens when another king takes over, so you can understand maybe a little bit more his obsession with David. And what we're going to see this morning is what happens when Saul's nightmare scenario seemingly comes true. And that is he is delivered into, he walks right into a trap, a seeming trap with David. And he is literally caught with his pants down with his greatest enemy in a dark cave. And in the process, we're gonna look at how David and Saul both respond to the situation. And here's what we're gonna look at. We're gonna look at our justice versus God's justice. We're gonna look at our mercy versus God's mercy. And we're gonna look at our love versus God's love. Our justice versus God's, our mercy versus God's, and our love versus God's. First of all, our justice versus God's justice. Let's look at verse three through seven. And he, that's Saul, came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in there to relieve himself. That means Number two, I'll just be honest with you, that, that's, he's, he, he needs a, like, 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 like many men, we need a quiet place, we need some privacy, and we need some time. It's my favorite 20 to 30 minutes of the day. Like, like, 
like daddy's just gonna go in there and the door's gonna close and nobody's gonna mess with daddy. There's an there's a actual a, a smell force field between me and them to keep them from bothering me and I am safe inside my force field for 20 to 30 minutes. And Saul, he wants to get away from his army because, you know, let's be honest, like it's hard to be a, a, a mighty king in general when somebody's seen you squatting. And so he decides he's gonna go into the cave in privacy and relieve himself in there. Now David, this is what he didn't know, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David say to him, David, this is what we've been waiting for. Like not only is the man who's seeking to kill you in here squatting like totally defenseless, his army isn't around, but not only that, God has delivered him into your hands, and this is the best case scenario, David, because, because of this, if you kill Saul now, we won't have to fight Saul and his army, and less people will die. We won't have to fight our neighbors and our friends and our relatives that are in his army. We can just kill him and be done with it, make you king, and we can all move on. God has set it all up for you, David. This is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily, that he is very stealthy, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And then he, we see in verse seven, he persuades his men not to attack Saul and to let Saul leave the cave and go on his way. Saul is seeking David as hard as he can because he believes that there has been some injustice here. Saul is pursuing David because he believes, I have been wronged. Sure, I disobeyed the Lord, but I have worked hard. I am king. I have set things up. This is not right that it should be taken from me, and it's not right that it should be taken from me for some kid who was a shepherd boy, and it's really not right that it should be taken from me who a kid who's a shepherd boy that my daughter loves and my son loves. Everyone's turning against me. This is not right. This is gonna, I'm gonna die. My family's gonna die at David's hand. I've got to make sure that justice happens. And when David's men see Saul delivered into the cave where David is, where David has a chance to just strike him down right there and end the whole thing with the David's men, imagine a scenario like this. David's men make similar wrong assumptions about justice that Saul was making. Here's the first assumption they're making about justice. and We have this idea about justice that assumes that I am the judge and that I can judge fairly. We, in situations in justice, we assume that I'm the judge and we assume that I can judge fairly. Now, you know this is true if you've ever passed out birthday cake at a kid's birthday party. These kids become all of a sudden like little tiny inspectors. 
and they break out like tape measures and they're measuring their cake versus somebody else's cake. They're measuring their amount of icing. They got like scales, like you have more icing than I have and they feel this whole sense of injustice. It, it happens very early and, it, and it, honestly, it plays out all throughout life if we're really honest with each other. Uh, Meg and I at the uh, marriage conference last week, there was a date night and we went out and we had this wonderful date and we're having this wonderful dinner at this really cool place and we, we ordered dessert and they bring us this dessert. It's, it's, a, it's like an apple dessert, apple galette. I don't even know how to, if I'm pronouncing it right. It's, it's basically like an open-faced apple tart with this pastry upturned at the end and, and they bring it out and like, you think like, it's gonna be apple dessert and it's like an apple dessert, Right? And, and, and we're like, oh, okay, well, you know, and then we taste it and both our eyes, like, both light up and eye each other suspiciously. Like, like all of a sudden, like, we're on a date and we love each other and I want, I, I want Megan to have, like, whatever pleases her, but honestly, there's a part of the back of my head saying, like, I want to make sure I get at least half of this thing. Like, how we're going to make sure I get my half of this amazing piece of apple dessert and this amazing house-made ice cream that goes along with it. We have this sense of justice. We start early and we're like tiny cops and lawyers and judges. Like we got this whole episode of Law and Order playing out in our head. Like I'm the judge, the jury, the cop that's deciding what is right and what is wrong. And I'm always looking around me, making sure nobody else is getting a bigger slice of cake than I'm getting. Isn't that oftentimes what Instagram and Facebook is to us? Like we look and we see like, Man, they, they have all of that. I gotta make it look, at least look like I, I've got similar the same. There's this whole like, this feeling like somebody else is getting more than I'm getting and have the ability to judge fairly what I should get and what other people should get around me. And so when Saul walks into this cave, the men around David see the obvious that God had delivered Saul into David's hand and they think that means that you should execute justice upon Saul because he's been trying to kill you. David, however, he sees it very differently than they see it. David doesn't view himself as the judge and jury. He sees God as the judge. David understands that you and I, all of us as human beings, we are not the judge, there's only one judge, and we lack the ability and the perspective to judge fairly about ourselves, or about other people. We lack the ability and the perspective to judge fairly ourselves or other people. This other assumption that David's men have as they see Saul in this cave with them is they have this assumption that, just like you and I do about justice, that assumes that someone is innocent. We, all, we assume that someone is innocent and most usually that means it's me. Think about all the arguments that you've ever had with anybody. Have you really, in the heat of the moment, really thought, I could be absolutely and totally wrong at this moment? Like at some moment, that thought may cross your mind, but the reason you're in the argument is you are convinced that you are not wrong, that you have been wrong that you are the innocent party, and if the other person would just see what you are saying, then like the light would go off in their head and they could, you guys can move on because you see fairly, you're the judge, and you think that you are innocent in this. I do the same thing. 
Saul insanely believes that he's been wronged by David, that he's been wronged by his son, by his daughter, by the people in Israel who think that David is awesome. But what he really thinks is he really thinks that he's been wronged by God. Because he really thinks that he's innocent. But David didn't have that assumption about the situation. If you look at verses 11 and 12, a little bit further on, when David starts addressing Saul, he says, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hand. So he's saying, you hunt my life to take it. But then listen to what he says in verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David knows he is not innocent. David has spent weeks and maybe months or longer wrestling in these caves and in these strongholds, hiding away, dealing with his own sense of a lack of trust in God. You can read it in the Psalms. You can read it in Psalm 142. This whole sense that he felt that he was being wrong until he was brought to the part where he saw that he was not being wrong, that God was good and powerful. David knew that Saul was wrong. He admitted it. He did not, he's not ignoring the fact that Saul was wrongly seeking him. But that didn't make David right. And don't we get that confused a lot? Can't you see, maybe better than anybody else in the world, the problems with your spouse or your mom or your dad or your kids or your boss. You can see their faults very clearly. And what I'm saying is, I'm not saying that those aren't faults. I'm not saying that you haven't been wronged by your spouse. I'm not saying you haven't been wronged by your friend. I'm not saying you haven't been wronged by your coworker. What I'm saying is, you and I aren't innocent either. And we're not the judge or the jury and we're not innocent. Here's why we can't stand to feel that we're wrong because we can't stand this sense of personal guilt. Here's why it's so hard for us to allow ourselves being wrong. Because we can't stand the idea of personal guilt because we know there are some things that just can't be fixed, right? Have you ever found that, that moment where you're in a conversation with somebody, maybe a spouse or a friend, and, and, and it turns, the conversation turns, it becomes an argument, and all of a sudden you realize that you said something that no matter how much you may apologize, you cannot take it back. It is hanging out there. Or you've done something to somebody else, and it can't be taken back. And there's no way I can apologize, I can tell you I'm sorry, I can try to, un- but there's no way I can undo it. And that guilt weighs on us because there's this sense that justice demands either that I, it, something that I've done wrong either be fixed or an equal penalty be paid for it. And sometimes there's just no way to do either of those things with the people around us. And I can't, I can't accept my wrong And so I'm just gonna make myself out to look innocent and make you look wrong because I can't deal with the repercussions if I am. 
We have this assumption that I'm the judge or the assumption that, that I'm innocent or people are innocent in general. And then we have this, I, this assumption about justice that turns into a cycle of retribution. Here's, here's the way it would generally work. Saul feels challenged by David. David goes after Saul. Saul goes back after David. David goes back after Saul until one of them is killed. And then their children come back to retribution against the other one. And it just goes back and forth. It's just like this, like sitting, like two kids sitting in the back seat, right? And one punches the other one in the arm. Like you, the, the other one may punch the other one back, but the next punch is coming back harder. And the next one is coming, there's two punches on the boy back. There's, there's three, and then it escalates. Isn't that the way most of our arguments work? It escalates because we always, we get caught in the cycle of retribution because justice is never paid enough. It keeps going around and around in the circle. This whole cycle of broken cycle of retribution back and forth and back and forth. And the problem with that is that the idea of retribution is not wrong. The fact that if, if you wrong me that, or I wrong you, that I need to pay that equal amount back to you to, to right the wrong. The problem is you and I lack, the, again, the perspective to know what that repayment actually is. And so I always view what you've done to me as worse than it actually is or I'm gonna stop you from doing it in the future and I'm gonna double down on retribution back to you. And that's how spouses become enemies. And that's how friendships are broken. That's how churches split. That's how the seemingly impenetrable bond between a mother and their children are broken. It becomes a cycle of two parties who think they're instant, who think they're innocent, constantly passing judgment on each other and constantly issuing, issuing a sentence against the other back and forth, back and forth. It happens in our politics, doesn't it? My side is innocent and your side is wrong. My side is good and your side is evil and we cannot have justice until your side is smashed into the ground. It happens in our marriages. It happens in our families. It happens in our friendship. It happens in our churches. It happens in our workplaces. This cycle of retribution starts to occur and it destroys intimacy. Because if I'm always judging everything that you say and do and trying to decide what needs to happen in retribution back to it and you're doing the same thing with me, there's no way there can be intimacy between us. Because intimacy requires bearing of oneself and vulnerability to the other person. The cycle of retribution, it destroys trust. I can't trust you because I'm counting what you've done for me, to me. And you can't trust me because you know I'm counting what you're doing and you're doing the same thing back to me. And don't you see that cycle in your relationships? Think about it. And once you're in that cycle of retribution, this sense of justice that needs to be repaid, where I'm the judge and the jury, where I think I have perspective and I'm the one who's passing out what needs to be paid back, it's hard to get out of that cycle, isn't it? But, but how was David able to step out of, the, of that cycle? David he goes in, his men are telling him to kill Saul. He goes in, cuts off the corner of his robe, and he's so convicted by that 
that he even confesses that to the Lord, confesses that to Saul. You know how David's able to start to break out of that cycle of retribution? Because David was actively, and this is important, is not passive. He is actively trusting. He's actively trusting in a God who is sovereign and a God who is good and a God who is just. You know what it means that God is sovereign? It means that he is ruling and reigning actively over everything in the universe. And you and I, this feeling, this sense that we have to tip the scales because nobody else is gonna take care of me, God says, I am more than able to take care of that. You lack the power and the perspective and the ability to do it rightly, to do it justly. Leave it to me. That doesn't call injustice just. It doesn't say that what has been done wrong to me or to others is okay. It's saying God is actively ruling and reigning and he will dispense justice as it needs to be dispensed. Not only is he actively ruling and reigning, but I know that he's good. I can trust he is active and in charge and I can trust that he is good above all things and and with this knowledge that I am not and that he's just. He has perspective that you and I do not have. We see God's justice versus our justice. We see our mercy versus God's mercy. Here's what we see in here, that not only does David not respond with a sense of selfish justice, this retribution, but David positively responds with mercy to Saul. This whole interaction that he has with Saul, he calls him the Lord, my Lord, the king. He bows with his face to the earth and pays him homage. And then he even gives him, tries to give him some credit and say, hey, I'm not trying to kill you, and I'm sure it's other people that are telling you that it's me, but I'm telling you it's not. Let the Lord judge between you and me. I'm not gonna kill you. I'm not gonna put my hand against you. In fact, he's showing him, the, that's a picture of what Jesus talked about, and Matthew heard this before. Jesus said, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him also two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus says, whenever he came on the scene, he raised the stakes and he says, not only leave it to God to do justice, but you should show mercy or Rather, what Saul says that David does, you should return good for evil. He raises the stakes. Don't just let God do justice, but you turn around and you repay good back to evil. When someone slaps you on one side, he's saying you turn the cheek and you give them the other side to slap as well. If someone asks you for one piece of clothes, you give them the next piece. A Roman soldier was able to require a Jew to carry something for him one mile, but that was the furthest. And he says that you turn around and you say to the soldier, you made me walk this one mile, I'll walk the second mile for you as well. Don't only 
leave it to God to dispense justice, but you turn around and you repay evil with good. But see, that messes with us because we have this sense that mercy is somehow softness or weakness, right? If I don't stand up for myself, who will? If I, if I don't stand up for myself, they're just gonna run over me, and that's not what this is saying. But we have this view that, that mercy is softness or weakness. We, we view the merciful person as the one who refuses to or lacks the ability to stand up for themselves, but that's not what Jesus' idea of mercy is. God's idea of mercy is true strength demonstrated. Who's the strongest person in this story, Saul or David? David, right? David restrains himself from killing Saul whenever he could, and now Saul owes David his life because he spared him. There is true strength found in showing mercy in returning evil for good. It says, you can't take from me what you're trying to take from me because I'm gonna turn around and give you even more. Our idea of mercy is that it's somehow earned. How often have we thought like, uh, they don't even deserve mercy, but nobody does. That's the whole idea of mercy, is that no one deserves it. But we think that for someone to, to be able to get mercy back from us, they need to have, there needs to be some sort of endearing quality about them, right? Like, well, they did this, so I'll show them mercy. Or, well, she's pretty, so I'll show her mercy. He's not, I'm not gonna show. Like, like whatever it is that goes through her head, that we think there needs to be some endearing or some earned quality that, that gives, gives us the ability to show them mercy, but mer that's not mercy, God's idea of mercy is something that's freely and completely unearned. David knew that he didn't deserve mercy and neither had Saul, neither did Saul. David didn't deserve mercy and neither did Saul. Our idea of mercy is sweeping something underneath the rug, isn't it? Like we're just gonna ignore that and pretend that didn't happen. Or, or say, well, it's, it's not that bad. But David understands that it's not. David says, you are showing me evil and I'm gonna show you the equal amount of good in return. God's mercy is this concept of costly mercy because the cost must be absorbed by someone when someone has been wronged. So there has to be a cost that is absorbed. There's this sense of justice that you need to either fix what you have done or you need to pay the equal payment to right what has been wronged to me. But God says, you have this coming to you and I will take it. I will absorb the cost. God doesn't say this wasn't bad, this wasn't evil. God says, I will absorb the cost. And that's what makes showing mercy in return for evil so difficult, isn't it? Because you and I lack that ability to break the vicious cycle of retribution because when we feel that we are wronged, there's this sense that justice must be served. If I've been wronged, then justice must be served in response because we know there's a cost that must be paid. I can't, I can't God may be just and God must be maybe 
powerful and he may be good, but I'm not those things. And I can't find a way to absorb the cost of what's been done to me and I'll let you off the hook. And not only to let you off the hook, but then to turn around and pay you good for the evil that's been paid to me. Now, this is the amazing thing in the story. We see that when David responds to Saul with good for evil, David disrupts the cycle, that the cycle of retribution back and forth. In, in verse 16, Saul begins to respond to David. And whenever it does, it says that he cried out to David and he, he said, is that your voice, my son David? It's, his heart has already been turned toward David because David had him dead to rights, let him go, has showed him honor, and now Saul is, man, it affects his heart. He addresses David as his son. And it says that he, Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. David's response of good back to Saul for evil had a profound effect on Saul. And it changes Saul, who was just trying to kill David, to all of a sudden respond with tenderness back. That's the effect that mercy has on people. It disrupts the cycle of retribution back and forth. It affects people. It stirs their heart. It disrupts that cycle. But here's the thing. It doesn't break the cycle. Because we see that David repays good for Saul's evil, but in two chapters from now, they're gonna find themselves doing the same thing over again like Groundhog Day. Saul is seeking David. Saul is delivered into David's hand. David spares him. Saul apologizes. This whole thing is gonna play itself out again in two chapters from now. That's because there's a missing ingredient that actually doesn't just disrupt the cycle of retribution, but actually breaks the cycle. And that ingredient is love. We see it, Jesus pulls it in on the second half of that passage where he was telling us to turn the other cheek, which is like, just like one of the most impossible things that Jesus could say to us, right? Verse 43, you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, doesn't that, that should, right where you are now, blow your mind and make you maybe a bit angry at Jesus. He's telling you not only not to repay what's been done to you and not only to show mercy, but he's saying, I'm telling you to love that person who has wronged you and is wronging you right now. To love your enemies and repay good to those out of love. And how in the world can we do that? And that's the revolutionary difference in relationships that Jesus brought onto the scene that never existed before and is unique to Christianity, it's not found anywhere else. Nowhere else does anybody find the ability to consistently and constantly not only not repay justice, not only to show mercy, but to respond in love, a heartfelt, tender love for their enemies. 
And here's where that power comes from. 1 Peter 2, 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. It's in Jesus that we see this truth that love rules. Love bears all things. It endures all things. It hopes all things. It is Christ's love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. While we were still traitors against him, he died for us. Love is not weak. Love does not sweep under the rug. Love bears all things and love bore all things. Jesus Christ, love embodied, bore all of my wrong, all of my sin, all of my everything. When I was like sheep, when I was like a sheep who was straying, I was an enemy against him. He bore all things and he returned the ultimate good for my incredible, terrible evil. He bore my evil and returned it for good and he did it out of love. He did not revile in return. He bore it. He took it. And if he loves me like that, then that is what enables me to love others in return, even whenever they pay me evil, and to in return to love them and to turn around and to pay them good for their evil. Do you see how this revolutionizes relationships? Do you see how it revolutionizes marriages and families and co-workers and churches and can spread to a community in such an extent that Jesus would say what? They will know you're my disciples by how they love one another. Not when we love people who are like us and who love us in return. When we love those who spitefully use us and abuse us. We don't say that's okay and that's not wrong. We say Jesus Christ bore my sin, he bore the log that is in my eye and therefore that is wrong and I'm gonna fight for, for, for justice but I'm gonna fight for justice knowing that I, he is the ultimate one who judges fairly and he has forgiven me much and therefore I must forgive much. How, if you could love like that, if you knew that kind of love in your soul and in your heart, how would that change your marriage? How would that change your friendships? How would that change the way that you operate at your workplace? How would that change the way that you deal with social media? How would that change all of us? And then how would that in turn change our community? The vicious cycle of retribution is broken when good is returned for evil. Jesus did that. And now we get to do that in return to those around us in such a way that he is glorified and we are not.
I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna prepare our hearts for communion. And, and here's what I'd like for you guys to think about as we do. I want you to think about who has wronged you or who is wronging you. And you have put yourself in the place of judge and jury over them and above them. Who are you in a relationship with now that you are stuck in a cycle of retribution back and forth? And it's poison all the time. And then ask the Lord that he would grant you repentance from that. Ask the Lord would shed his love abroad in your heart that would enable you and empower you to love them in return and to return good for evil that Jesus would be glorified. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.